In your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be in Hebrews 12 probably this week and next week, I would think, because of the, of the, uh, the greatness of what uh, the Apostle presents here unto us. By the way, I wanted to let you know this, this will be, what is the, this is the second last Lord's Day to the end of the year. So we have one more Lord's Day this year, the 31st of December, uh, sh- uh, should the Lord grant us that day. And then we'll have a new schedule for the licentiates. Please be in prayer for them. Let me know. Let, uh, give me a moment to tell you what that, what that schedule is. So they will be, uh, Lord willing, in the pulpit the last week of each month. In the first month, January, and then the 3rd, 5th, 7th, 9th, and 11th, that will be for preaching. And then the 2nd, 4th, 6th, 8th, 10th, and 12th, that will be for readings. So we have a schedule set up for them for next year. So please be in prayer for them as they will, um, well, we will step it up a little bit with regard to frequency in the pulpit for them. We had talked about quarterly for the first year and everybody was happy with that for the most part. But now we have, uh, we are stepping up here the second year so that they will be in the pulpit uh, once a month, either reading or preaching. So please pray for them in that. All right, with that then, let's, let's uh, give our attention to the reading of Scripture. We'll begin in uh, verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, And unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Our quotation today is from the Reverend Richard Sibbs. 
As much as men above beasts, so much is the church raised above all men. This mountain is above all mountains. The mountain of the Lord is above all mountains whatsoever. O thou mountain shalt stand immovable when all other mountains shall smoke if they are but touched. This is the mountain of mountains. The church of God is most excellent in glory and dignity as you may see in the latter end of the former chapter how the glory of the church puts down all other glories whatsoever. The moon, saith the prophet, shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. So that the brightness of the church shall put down the glory of the sun and of the moon. Thus, you see, the church of God is a mountain. That's interesting. Interesting way to think about that, isn't it? So, before we dive into the incrementals and the exposition of this section of Hebrews chapter 12, there are a couple of things that I want you to remember And I want to speak with you maybe somewhat freely and openly about these things that they are, I think, controverted and misunderstood. First of all, there are those who would take the comparison that is made here in Hebrews chapter 12. And they would say that the writer here is emphasizing Sinai at the beginning there in verse 18, the mountain that might be touched. And then the mountain that can't be touched, Jerusalem, uh, which is above, or the heavenly Jerusalem, that he would be de-emphasizing the visible church and emphasizing the invisible church. And I think that would be a a real mistake, a horrid mistake from this passage. And let me tell you why. You'll remember this passage with me from Genesis chapter 28. And we see it, we see this concept elsewhere in Scripture. But it is very clear here In Genesis 28, we'll have Jacob, he falls to sleep. He sees a vision of the ladder that stretches between earth and heaven. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon that ladder. And he wakes up in the morning and he says, Surely God is in this place and I knew it not. And then he says, This is the the house of God, the gate of heaven. You remember that? Okay, without turning there, um, we'll just take that for enough of a description to help us forward in our understanding. There have been theologians that we love and we trust in many, many different uh, aspects of their teaching. And yet some of them from time to time, they go astray. They de-emphasize the distinction between the visible and invisible church. It is also possible to overemphasize the distinction between the visible and, indiv- and invisible church such that sooner or later you end up having essentially, by way of practice, two churches. Now we know, beloved, that there is only one church. Now, the Apostle Paul will teach us this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4. Right, You're called into one body. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism one hope of your calling, one God and Father who is over all and in you and through all and so on, in you all. So that there is indeed one church. When we think of the visible church and its distinction with the invisible church, what we ought to think about is that in, in some 
respects when we think of the invisible church. We're looking at it from the perspective of our timeless and omniscient God who sees the end from the beginning, who knows all of his works from the foundation of the world, who looks over the church in that idyllic redeemed sense that he sees her at her end, right? Because he sees the end from the beginning. And, and so then with regard to the way that the Lord views the church, we call it invisible because he has not been pleased to reveal that to us. But then we also talk, as we have heard in our confession of faith, of the visible Catholic Church. And as we said today, as we confessed earlier today, unto this visible Catholic Church, the Lord has given the ministry ordinances and oracles for the gathering and perfecting of the saints and so on. And when we think of the visible church, this is something that the Lord has put into our hands to administer, to hold on to, to have responsibility in. Each of us, not just church officers, but members as well. This is why we're talking about her valuation and bringing up the valuation of the visible church and the public worship overall. Because the Lord has put that into our hands rightly to handle. Now we can fumble. We can do it wrong. We can do what some have said, you know, some have in their practice, perhaps they wouldn't say this out loud, but some have in their practice de-emphasized the visible church to the extent that it, it doesn't really matter if they come to church or not. You know, they're communing with God in their home. We know very religious and we would think from viewing their outward uh, behavior, very upright people that some of them refused to join the church for decades because they were concerned about her purity. We understand the well-meaning of that procedure, although we don't agree with its outcome. And so, beloved, we can overemphasize one and the other. But see, here in Genesis chapter 28, I think everything comes together. And what we ought to think of when we think of the visible church is not something that is distinct with regard to the invisible church, but we ought to think of her, if I can put it this way, as the portals of heaven. Isn't that what Jacob called it? This is the house of God, the very gate of heaven. And how was it that Jacob came to call it that? He came to call it that because he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in all presented in his mediatorial regalia as that only concourse between heaven and earth, the communion between, if you will, the visible and invisible church or that which unites and brings them together. There's a uh, popular music guy that I've listened to for decades. I kind of like him. I'm coming to like him less, probably because my, my affections are moving more toward the Lord. He has a, a, a song out that he's recently written, and uh, it, it is called, believe it or not, it is called The Barricades of Heaven. The Barricades of Heaven. As if the Lord has barricaded up his habitation. That's why I like him less and less. Because he's talking like that. You know, stop preaching at me and just sing, right? The church, the visible church, certainly ought not to be the barricade of heaven. Actually, what it is, what God has designed her to be, 
is the portal, the very gate of heaven. And it is in that way that she is connected to that invisible church, the, all the number of the elect out of which there is, or sorry, that have been or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. The Lord knows them that are his, right? Second Timothy chapter 2. And he will bring all of his people home, but he will bring them home through the portal, not contrary to it. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter 12 here, and we hear the hymn contrasting Sinai to the heavenly Jerusalem, we ought not to think that what he's contrasting is invisible to visible or visible to invisible. What, he's, what he is contrasting is the Judaism that was taking place in the first century to the gospel that had been preached by Christ and the apostles. Going back to Sinai is not going back to the visible church in contradistinction to the invisible church. Going to Sinai is going to legal righteousness in contrast to the free righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to those who believe in him. Going back to the ceremonies is to say that the substance is not enough. We we will have the shadow thank you instead. So we have to get this contrast right if we're going to understand where we're going in Hebrews chapter 12. Is that to say that what took place at Sinai was not an expression of the visible church? Not at all. It was certainly an expression of the visible church. You had professors there. You had the covenant of God pressed. You had the gospel preached. You had a proto-baptism. I had a washing and a proto-Lord's Supper, a meal sat in presence of God, eating and drinking, and he laid not his hand upon them. All of those things were present at Sinai. It was an expression of the visible church, but a visible church that was now thought of in the first century as something that it truly wasn't, a merit system of religion. And that is what's being contrasted here in Hebrews chapter 12. So the contrast is not between visible and invisible. The contrast is between the religion of Moses, of Abraham, of David, of Noah, as we heard, right, in the last chapter, Esau, not Esau, sorry, what's his name? Enoch, thank you. Jacob, Isaac, contrasted to what had become first or second temple Judaism and the merit religion that accompanied it. So, that's my introductory to what we're about to talk about because what I want us to understand here is that when he begins speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem and so on, he's not talking about the invisible church. He's talking about the church generally as she is exhibited from the perspective of of God invisibly and from the perspective of you and I visibly and that church as the gate or portal of heaven itself. Okay? So with that then, we can uh, spend a little bit of time then remembering where we have been and where, where is it that we have been? We, we've looked at several large considerations with regard to profiting from the public worship. We talked about our way of proceeding or that there is to be regulation. We talked about reverence and propriety. And we also talked about humility. 
We talked about remembering who it is that we approach, right? And we'll, we'll do a little bit of that in this passage as we move through it. Uh, we, we also looked at preparation, and we looked at that in two steps, right? Not a uh, living as we would please and then preparing, you know, like cramming for a test, as we call it. Not like that. But by living our days, studying to know our God, and then that nearer, uh, what, what the Bible will call, sanctify yourselves and draw near. Right? So we looked at that preparation. And then we began the last time to talk about valuation. And we looked at Genesis, sorry, <laughs> Galatians chapter 4. They both begin with G, right? Uh, Galatians chapter 4. And in Galatians 4, we learned some things about the church that ought to make us appreciate her. That we can rightly call her mother. Right? That she's the mother of us all. That she's the one who feeds us with that pure milk, if we can relate it back to the, to the series uh, in the morning. And then we introduced also, we said that we were going to look at Hebrews uh, 12, and then we're going to look at Psalm 87. In all of that, we will see God's perspective on the church. And when we say God's perspective, again, definitions are important. By that perspective, we don't mean, remember, God is omniscient. He looks at the church, both visible and, vis- and invisible. He sees both of those aspects, both of those perspectives at the same time. I know, it's amazing, isn't it? When God thinks of the church, God will think of the church as that idyllic church that he has called to himself before the foundation of the world. And he will also think of that visible church that is fraught with imperfection, bad doctrine, that must be purified, that must be cleansed, that must be washed with the water of the word. He thinks of that. He thinks of both of those things. Because he thinks of his church. Okay? So, I know that we all want to be theologians. Sometimes theologians are impractical. It's impractical to think of the church so bifurcated between visible and invisible. And it leads to errors. All right. So let's go ahead then and dive in to our passage. As wonderful and as valuable as the expression of the visible church was there in verses 18 through 21. The Lord will call upon us in this passage to go beyond that. But let's remember what 18 through 21 presents to us in just a few brief moments. First of all, it was a mountain that burned with fire. (coughs) In other words, God chose visibly to manifest himself on that mountain with fire. With fire. That God would show in that fiery manifestation his great anger against sin. His great anger against all who would cross him, who would rebel against him, who would shake their fist at him. It put the the people to fear, didn't it? There was blackness and darkness and tempest. The people of God had been really without much in regard to teaching for generations, depending on the chronology that you use. 
Um, some would say that the Egyptian captivity was 430 years long. Others would say it was 215 years long. That the, the entire time of Abraham and then to the Exodus, that was the 430 years. And there's good folks on both sides of that. But it is at least 215 years where they have been in Egypt. And for at least some period, perhaps two or three generations, they have been truly without the law and slaves in bondage. And we'll remember that, won't we? Because the Lord tells them to remember the Sabbath day, which they've no doubt completely forgotten or at least uh, had placed in the back of their minds because they would have been forced to work endlessly right and so the lord comes down upon sinai in this great show of power this great display of holiness and he will proclaim his law to them and paul will tell us in galatians chapter 3 that this law was added because of transgressions that the people of god had fallen into an habitual pattern of sin that must be cured and he gave them the law as a mercy to them as a grace to them So fire, blackness, darkness, tempest, trumpet, voice of words. And in hearing those words, they turned to Moses and they said, no more words, Moses, please. You go talk to him. We don't want to talk anymore. If we hear another word, we know what the next word is. He's told us his 10 words. We know the 11th is destruction. Because these 10 words have convicted us and shaken us to our core. Right? So... Notice that there's some really wonderful things going on here as well. There were faithful people at the base of Sinai. Not many, but a few. And then Sinai was remembered by them as they went into the wilderness. And, of course, I told you this before. I don't believe that all of the folks who showed themselves as unbelievers at Kadesh Barnea died unbelievers in the wilderness. I believe the Lord was merciful to them and many came along. And certainly what they remembered of Sinai would have been instrumental in them coming to faith in Christ. Moses himself said, I exceedingly fear and quake. They could not endure uh, those words anymore. If so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. The people were commanded to stay down from there. Why? Because God's presence was manifested there. And so there were some wonderfully powerful and valuable things that were presented to the people of God on Mount Sinai. But the apostle here will draw a comparison that, if you will, puts Sinai to shame with regard to the glory of the mountain to which we have come. And remember, it's not an invisible mountain. We, have, we are at its portals here. In the visible church. So verse 22 then. But ye are come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Now this is not the mountain that can be touched like Zion in Palestine. Or like Horeb at Sinai. Although the visible church has an address beloved. It's not her address that makes her valuable. But she is a place. In this world. In fact she is many places. In this world. Zion is not just. One particular place. It is. Every place. Where the Lord makes himself known. And says. 
This is my habitation. This is the place where I've chosen to set my name. And in that place, well, how do I, let's just put it very simply. Let's make a simple illustration out of it, okay? Uh, Let's say that there's a person you really want to meet. Okay? You really want to, I don't know, anybody you can think of. We don't need to put a name on it. It'll just be distracting. But there's a person that you want to meet. And the person says, I'm going to be at this address at this time. You're probably going to be there if you want to meet him. Now, there are many that would say, oh, I want to meet him. Yes, I really do. But they would never go to meet him. It's too much trouble. Um, Or as the folks said in the parable, uh, I've got a team of oxen I need to try out. I've got a new car I need to put on the road. I've got this to do. I've got that to do instead. If you really wanted to meet him, you'd come where he's setting down his name. You'd come where he's setting down his person. You'd come where he is said to take up his habitation. That's what Zion is. And that's all it is. It's a very simple illustration. Yet when when the writer here says, you are come to Mount Zion, then every time you and I sing in the Psalter, Zion, we sing of here. It's here we're singing of. Because this is the place in this age where God has has chosen to set his name. Not only here, obviously. There are many places like this place where the Lord has chosen to set his name. But wherever he has chosen to set his name, this is where we come to meet with him. And that was the significance of Zion. It was a mountain. Why was it a mountain? Well, because God knows us. He knows our frame, that we are but dust, that when we're going to do something, we like to do it at the top of a mountain. If we're going to do something important, we want to climb up to do it. We want to look over the vistas. We want to be, um, if you will, impressed with with the height of the place and all of that. And so what does he say? It's not a mountain that might be touched, but you are come to Mount Zion. This is the place. This is that elevated place where the Lord has chosen to set his name. Um, Zion was also, as we will see in a little bit, it was a place of, of judgment. It was a place where people came to worship the Lord. And we could look at that over and again. But let's just, for the sake of time, hear this quotation from the Reverend John Owen. This is the first privilege of believers under the gospel. They come unto Mount Zion, that is. They are interested in all the promises of God made unto Zion, recorded in the scripture, in all the love and care God expressed towards it, in all the spiritual glories assigned unto it. The things spoken of it were never accomplished in the earthly Zion, but only typically, spiritually, and in their reality, they belong unto believers under the New Testament in Zion here. We might, if we were minded to, we could take the time and keep in mind that each one of these statements, Mount Zion, Heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of angels, city of the living God, each one of those is a sermon in its own right. To show all that God has said about these things in the Bible. Well, I don't want to make it that tedious. I don't want to have this series extend ad infinitum. We want to get on to some of the other things we need to do in worship and profit from it. But beloved, it is true that we have 
copious scripture revelation for each of these terms teaching us. Just get out your treasury of scripture knowledge or your concordance and open up Hebrews chapter 12 and look up every instance of Zion in the Old Testament. Or if you have one that, that, that is a little bit more subject focus, do what Mr. Owen suggests. Look up all of the times Zion is used in connection with a promise in Scripture. The promises that God has made to Zion, beloved, they are nigh innumerable. Promise of mercy, a promise of grace, promises of salvation, promises of protection and provision, promises of light and wisdom and teaching, promises of judgment, right judgment, promises of truth and wisdom. All of these things belong to Zion. Why? Because God has promised them to her and he said, this is where I will be and so these things flow out from me and you can, can, if you will, sit in the middle of that stream that flows out from the throne of God and from the Lamb and drink it in. Of course, the question that we're going to ask at the end of each of these is, how many other places in the world does that take place? Nowhere else. There's not a rogue fountain out in the desert somewhere. So much were the people of God uh, attached to their, to their earthly Zion that in the days of John Baptist or in the days of Christ when they came preaching, they wondered at them. You haven't come up the right way. You didn't, you didn't come up through Zion. You're outside of Zion. Actually, Zion had left the true Zion. Isn't that true? And it was John Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ that gave the clarion call to the people of God to return to the Lord in Zion. Not outside of Zion, but in Zion. Why? Because that is where the Lord has set his name. This is the place of all of his promises. Secondly, it is the city of the living God. That's what he says here. Uh, you are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. That's the next name that the Lord places upon the visible church. The city of the living God. Well, there are several things there. The first is that it's a city. And the second is that's where God is. It's his habitation. Zion is the place where God says, yeah, I'm going to set my name there. All my promises pertain to that. But now he makes it explicit. This is the city of of the living God. Beloved, the only reason we have to exist as a church is because we are the city of God. And if it is for any other reason, we've left our charter. We've left our calling. We've left our raison d'etre. Children, that's a French term. We've left our reason for being. It's only here that we could say that this is the city of the living God. No, Vatican City is not the city of the living God. It is a city, and it is the city of a small g God, but it is not the city of the living God. This is the city of the living God, and every place that has those three marks that we've talked about over and again these last few weeks that as well 
is the city of the living God. So, what do we mean by that? Well, it's the place of his habitation. It is the seat of his throne. It is the object of almost innumerable promises. The gospel proceeds from her. The object of God's covenantal love. The joy of the whole earth. Salvation flows from out of her walls because God dwells here. Listen to Owen once again. This is the second privilege of the gospel state wherein all the remaining promises of the Old Testament are transferred and made over to believers. Whatever is spoken of the city of God or of Jerusalem that is spiritual, that it contains in it the love or grace or favor of God, it is made theirs, all of it. Faith can lay claim unto it all. Believers are so come to this city to be its inhabitants, free denizens, possessors of it, unto whom all the rights and privileges and immunities of it do belong. And what is spoken of it within the scripture is a ground of faith unto them and a spring of consolation. Why would the writer here call it the city of the living God? Because like cities, it is a city that has government for its good. It has walls. Remember, we're going to hear about walking about Jerusalem, telling its towers, and so on. And we'll get to that in a little while, Lord willing. But what we're going to see here is that because it's a city, it's a place of activity, responsibility. It is a place of, of, of uh, trade. Not trade in, in earthly things, but in heavenly and in spiritual things. It's a place of habitation. It's a place of responsibility, of leadership and following that leadership of taking our place in it as the people that rightly belong here. All of that is involved in the word city, but it's more, it's the city of the living God. Any city can be a city, but no city, but this can be the city of the living God. And let me ask you once again, what other city has that name, the city of the living God? Well, there simply is none. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We remember, don't we, that in the Old Testament very often cities were city-states. They were almost like independent nations. They had their environs around them and the people that were connected to them. But cities were spoken of almost as independent city-states. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream well, he had a lot of dreams, didn't he? But this one, in this particular chapter, was of this rock. This is the dream he couldn't remember. I don't remember the dream. You guys come in and you tell me the dream, and then you tell me what it means. I don't know. I don't remember. And so Daniel comes in. Verse 31, O king, thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible in the image's head. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet, part of iron, part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote out or which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay and the brass and the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor. And wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, 
and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation. Well, you know the interpretation. The interpretation is that this colossus, this great statue that Nebuchadnezzar has seen, is really a picture of the kingdoms of the world shortly to come. His own being the head of gold, right? And then the Medo-Persian Empire to come later, and then the Syrians to come behind that, and then the Romans to come behind that, and that takes it all the way down to the feet of clay and the toes of iron mingled with clay. And then there is a kingdom, a rock made without hands that comes from who knows where, from parts unseen and unknown. And this rock strikes the Colossus at its feet and it falls broken into pieces and the wind blows the pieces to the four corners of the world never to be heard from again. And that rock, Jerusalem, the city of the living God, that rock becomes a kingdom that fills the whole world. That's the city of the living God. It is a kingdom that fills the entire world. Outposts and, and uh, portals of heaven. Note that it is a city which has habit, inhabitations, or sorry, inhabitants, governments, cooperation. The law was received in the, in the wilderness and the people were exposed in danger. Here they are protected with sound doctrine, truth, order, labor, governance. It is a place of safety in ancient times. A city was away from the enemy, the dangers of the wilderness. A place of supply and protection. And we would not have the protection of sound doctrine and godly practice. The provision that God has given to his people apart from the church and her public ministry considered as that city where that protection lives now she's called the heavenly Jerusalem number three the heavenly Jerusalem we learned that last week didn't we Paul uses the same term in Galatians chapter 4 he calls it the Jerusalem which is above and so here what is being contrasted is the Jerusalem that is still standing to the Jerusalem that is heavenly. And as the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 made it clear, the Jerusalem that now is corresponds to Hagar and Mount Sinai, which is in bondage. That's what he says in Galatians chapter 4. So the contrast here is between Sinai and the true Jerusalem once again. Another maybe indication that Paul was instrumental in the writing of the book of Hebrews. So the contrast here is between the heavenly and the earthly Jerusalem. And because it's called heavenly, first of all we have, it is that, that spiritual Jerusalem. It is everything that the earthly Jerusalem was supposed to have but left. She left her spiritual religion. She became a carnal merit religion. And so she is not Jerusalem anymore. It is here, beloved. Where the gospel is preached, where the word of God is laid out in its fullness, that we find Jerusalem truly as that city set on the hill. You think Jesus is referencing that in the Sermon on the Mount? It is, it is eminently possible that when he says, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, notice he's speaking in Jerusalem, who was set on, which was set on a hill. 
But she neglected to be the Jerusalem she was supposed to be. And so now that Jerusalem is spoken of as a heavenly, a spiritual Jerusalem that contains all that the earthly Jerusalem was supposed to have. It is heavenly in that it is enduring. It is never to be destroyed. All of the powers of the world cannot dispossess the people of God from their place in the heavenly Jerusalem. This archetype existed in the Old Testament and continues even today. We saw it last week, as we said, but let's also look at Psalm 48 for a moment. I put it to you, let me say it this way, if you can come with me this far, that the earthly Jerusalem in the Old Testament, in the days of particular faithfulness, let's say in the days of Solomon, the early days of Solomon, in the days of Asa, in the days of Jehoshaphat, in the days of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, right? That she more or less corresponded to the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, there was an archetypal Jerusalem in heaven even while there was a Jerusalem upon earth. Right? Because the church is to be considered in both. Notice in Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together, they saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. Fear took hold upon them there, and pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God, God will establish it forever, Salah. We have thought on thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto the death. I don't think there's anybody in this room that that Uh, would disagree with the statement that Psalm 48 was not written about the earthly Jerusalem. God said things about Jerusalem there that never came true upon the earthly Jerusalem. He was writing about the heavenly Jerusalem that existed in that day and continues to this day, beloved. This is the portal to that heavenly Jerusalem. We are come to the heavenly Jerusalem through these portals. This is what the binding and loosing, the opening and shutting is all about. This is not the barricade of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. So, notice that we as elders and parents in the church are required to know her, to love her, to know her parts, her palaces, her advantages, that we might tell it to the next generation, that we might bequeath a love for Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem to the generation to come. That 
like an inheritance is laid up for our children, we would want to leave them something valuable so the knowledge of the heavenly Jerusalem is that valuable thing that we want to leave to them as an inheritance. We talked about valuation, right? Now we're talking about the valuation of the visible church and its worship and how we must pass that on to our children. Note the inheritance that you desire to leave is not just a mystical idea. This is the folly of Psalm 49, right? If we would look at it in that way. But we have something of true and lasting value to pass on to the generation to come. Let's run through eight things briefly here in Psalm 49. First of all, Zion is beautifully situated. She's beautifully situated. What do we think of when we think of maybe, you know, your a friend of yours calls you up and says, hey, I just bought a new house. Oh, really? How is it? <clears throat> it's really nice. It's out in the country. It's up on a hill. It's beautifully situated. Beautifully situated. Well, that's what's said here. Zion is beautifully situated. That is, that she is set in the most pleasant place in the world. Why? Because God is there. This is where we hear of the Lord. This is where we hear of His grace and mercy. It is here that we hear of a Savior. Beloved, where do you hear of a Savior besides here? And this as the catalyst for countless conversations in your families and and among your friends. When you go out there, beloved, come with me for a minute here. When you go out there and you hear the name of Christ, how do you hear it? Well, it's shameful how we hear it. His name out there. But how do we hear it here? Well, He is our God. He is our Savior. Nobody speaks of Christ like He's rightly spoken of here in the church. Secondly, this is where the King dwells. Third, He is a refuge for all who call upon Him. Zion is that refuge. She is that true, if you will, city of refuge where those come who have committed any crime to be forgiven by her King and rightly judged and handled. This King of ours, He is a protector. None of the enemies can touch those who belong to her. Fifthly, she is established Forever, she is that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God, we learn one chapter ahead in Hebrews. Sixth, she is the place where God's covenant fidelity, His covenant mercy is known and rested upon and preached and taught and advertised and proclaimed. From here, from this place, number seven, the praise of God goes out into all the earth. And then in verse 8, or number 8, excuse me, in my notes here, we are commanded to know her, her bulwarks, her palaces, and her towers. What is a tower? A tower is a place of watchfulness and defense. You enter into the tower as a watchman on the wall, looking out over the dangers and turning your face to the people, telling them peace and safety. Or take cover. It's the place of of watching over 
the people of God. Know the, the, know the towers of the Lord. That is, know those who are the watchmen in the towers. Or as Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and be sure to esteem them very highly for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 Know her towers. And remember what those false shepherds did in the days of Jeremiah? What did they say? Peace! Peace! When there was no peace. Right? Secondly, know her palaces. Know her palaces. Know the royalty and richness, the opulence. Know the jewels and the gold and the silver. Know that the riches that are here outstrip all of the riches of the world and that the droppings of the honeycomb and gold and silver cannot compare to the law of the Lord, which is perfect and which converts the soul. Where else but here are those spiritual riches which outstrip all others? Bulwarks. What are bulwarks? Bulwark is an old uh, word for something heavy that's used in defense, either a foundation or a wall. Some of you have seen pictures of the Great Wall of China, haven't you? I remember the first time I saw the, a picture of the Great Wall of China. I've never seen the Great Wall of China. Some of you have seen pictures of it, like I have. And you look at the Great Wall of China, and you think, well, it's not a wall, it's a road. You can put wagons and vehicles on top of that. That's not a wall. I think of a wall, I think of something like this. Not something, you know, like that. But that's what a bulwark is. It's a wall so wide that when they hit it with their battering ram, it doesn't go through. You put a single layer of bricks and here they come with their ram and, well, they're through it in one lick. But not so with those walls. In fact, those walls of Jerusalem were such that there were apartments in them. Places that you could live. And when things got really bad and they were under siege, they would bring rock and rubble and other heavy things, metal and so on, and pack it in the wall. That was a bulwark. Beloved, know the defense of Zion. Know her defenses, that she is founded and protected by sound doctrine. Towers, palaces, bulwarks. Know Zion and all that she has to offer by way of protection, instruction, protection, and riches. Know all of that. To an innumerable company of angels. And I'm up against the hour, so we'll have, to, we'll have to put a pin right here. So next week, we will take up an innumerable company of angels. Let me give you a hint. Let me give you a hint. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10. You write that down. You think about it. Meditate on it. This, this is... Um, <clears throat> This is this innumerable company of angels. By angels we read messengers. And I don't want to leave you only with <coughs> those spiritual beings, the elect angels. But also the Lord has set in Zion an innumerable company of messengers. Angels that he has sent to preach. Like the angels of the churches to the, to the 
uh, in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Any, any person or these elect spirit beings that are sent in service of those who are inheriting salvation are rightly called angels. And notice that they are innumerable. Well, we'll have to stop there. So what did we see today? We saw just a few things. We looked at Mount Zion um, as, its, as that place of all of the promises of God. We saw it as the city of the living God. We looked at, at city and then living God. We looked at the heavenly Jerusalem. So as many sermons do, this one had three points after an extended introduction. Beloved, let us as we continue our study of of the greatness of the visible church and, and our proper valuation of it. Let's meditate on these things. Let's draw them close in our thoughts that we might learn to appreciate Zion more and more. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy habitation. We thank Thee, Lord, for what we have learned in Zion over the course of our lives, even if we are little ones, we thank Thee for what we see our little ones learning in Zion. That they stand with us, that they sit with us, that they sing with us, that they pray with us, that they know where they ought to be and have taken their place among Thy people. Oh Lord, we pray that we might recognize that these things are not found anywhere else and their valuation of them quite precious. And Lord, that thou wouldst be with us as we continue in our study, that thou wouldst raise up, inflame our affection for Zion because of her great value. Father, we confess that her value is not enhanced nor advanced by us that it is because thou art here. As we read in the end of the book of Ezekiel that the greatness of that temple that he described is summed up in these words, Jehovah is there. O oh Lord, that that would be the value that we look for. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.